Okay, uh, this is another lecture on uh, the modern history of Japan for uh, Japanese 100 for the history section. And uh, today we're going to be getting a little deeper into Meiji Japan. So in the previous lecture, we focused on more or less the first decade of the Meiji period from roughly 1868 to 1877 or so. And during that relatively brief span, uh, Japan had transformed itself quite remarkably uh, and quite rapidly. In addition to monumental changes to its economic and governmental systems, uh, also to its physical and social infrastructure, this new young nation had, for better and for worse, uh, made its first inroads as a player on the new international stage laid out before it. Uh, we talked about the four sort of representative slogans uh, of the Meiji period, uh, leaving Asia joining the West, civilization and enlightenment, enrich the nation, strengthen the military, Japanese spirit, Western technology, and specifically mentioned that uh, the slogans two through four are kind of the means to the end, which is uh, slogan number one, leaving Asia and joining the West, right? That's uh, the, the, the kind of overarching goal. Uh, we also uh, spent some time thinking about the 1868 Charter Oath, uh, which became Article One of the Meiji Constitution, which we will talk about a little bit in this lecture. Uh, the five principles laid out here, uh, deliberative assemblies shall be established, all classes high and low shall unite in uh, the work of government, the common people shall pursue their own calling, and evil customs of the past shall be broken off, and then knowledge shall be sought throughout the world to strengthen imperial rule. Uh, these are sort of a, uh, uh, a call to arms, if you will, uh, for the new Meiji state. Uh, finally, we um, spoke specifically about this sort of uh, group of three uh, events in the 1870s, the expedition to Taiwan, uh, the Korean expedition that followed, and then the civil war uh, that was put down in 1877. Uh, the the, the uh, 1876 Korea expedition and the 1877 Satsuma Rebellion are the most important of these. Uh, the Korean expedition uh, essentially was a chance for Japan to mirror what Commodore Perry and the so-called black ships had done to Japan in the 1850s. Uh, in other words, open up uh, you know, new uh, routes for trade, uh, new opportunities, in, an, in a lopsided, unequal manner uh, with, the with a show of force. In other words, what is called gunboat diplomacy. And then the 1877 uh, Civil War, such as it was, uh, I think Mark Rabina's quote uh, sums it up quite nicely. Old Japan and New Japan had met in battle and Old Japan had lost. And so that's kind of where we had left off. Uh, before jumping into today's lecture, uh, I want to take a, a moment to consider the context of this new world order into which uh, modern Japan was born and was growing up in the 19th century. Um, 
Japan sought knowledge in the world. Uh, think back to the Charter Oath uh, and sought to be a great power in it too. Um, and that goal and that knowledge was circumscribed by the larger context of what is known as social Darwinism. Uh, and also this idea at the time that was called the Great Game, uh, I guess what we call now the Game of Thrones. Uh, social Darwinism, uh, if you're not familiar or if you need a refresher, uh, it is the misapplication of Charles Darwin's writings on natural selection, uh, i.e. evolution, to the social world of humankind. From Darwin's observations about the quote-unquote survival of the fittest came the conclusion that inequity in human society was natural and therefore right or desirable. In other words, uh, this has a little bit of the, the same kind of function as uh, we've talked about with uh, the Calvinist doctrine of predestination and also the Buddhist doctrine of karma uh, that we mentioned in the first lecture. Uh, as it was popularized by the English sociologist Herbert Spencer, uh, who's actually the one who coined the phrase survival of the fittest, uh, Darwin's ideas were reinterpreted to justify laissez-faire social policies at home and rapacious imperialism abroad. And it's not hard to see how this doctrine would appeal to the quote-unquote fittest. Uh, you know, the survival of the fittest is the survival of uh, is a doctrine that would appeal to the fittest and not really to many others. Um, Spencer was a salient part of the sort of baggage of Western civilization and modernity that were imported into Japan. Andrew Gordon, uh, a historian of Japan, described this flood of translated works and the reception of Spencer and other European thinkers like this. He said, quote, translations of Western books formed an important part of the expanding cultural output. A vast range of political thought was translated. By the late 1870s, curious readers could dip into the works of John Stuart Mill and Jean-Jacques Rousseau works of conservative German statism and the social Darwinism of Herbert Spencer were translated and found enthusiastic readers among an increasingly educated public. It's true that intellectuals like Fukuzawa Yukichi advanced the cause of quote-unquote civilization and enlightenment, that bumme kaika that we've talked about, and they did so in the belief that only an independent citizenry could support an independent Japan. But even Fukuzawa was a statist, the independence of the people was in the service of the state. To many Japanese elites, more than the utilitarian empiricist liberalism of Mill or the romanticism of Rousseau, the hard-nosed self-interest of Spencer and the statism of Bismarck's New Germany seemed to constitute something of a handbook or a rulebook for the great game. This is useful context, I think, to understand the purpose of domestic reforms like universal public education or conscription, as well as the imposition of an unequal treaty on Korea in 1876, which we've just talked about. It helps to answer the question, why Korea, in other words? And the answer, bluntly, was, why not? Gordon, again, described this quite well, saying, all of Japan's elites, as well as the vigorously opinionated public, saw Korea, and Asia more generally, as a frontier for Japan's expanding power and prestige. By 1876, even Fukuzawa had accepted that it was a might-makes-right world. Anticipating Mao's famous dictum that uh, power comes from the barrel of a gun, he wrote, A few cannons are worth more than a hundred volumes of international law. By 1882, he was willing to accept autocracy at home and imperialist expansion abroad, if only they would advance national interest. 
Uh, by the way, this is a photograph of him in San Francisco on the Iwakura mission. Uh, it has nothing to do with the quote, it's just a great photo. Uh, in his article on the 1874 uh, punitive expedition to Taiwan, uh, historian Robert Eskildsen describes mimetic imperialism, in other words, an imitative uh, imperialism. And Eskildsen links this to the overall absorption and adoption of Western civilization. Japanese colonialism happened concurrently with and contributed much to Japan's modernization. The discourse on, discourses on civilization and savagery that gained popularity at the time of the Taiwan expedition, in other words, in the 1870s, point to a similar pattern. Even before Japan established a form, formal colonial empire, debates about using Japanese military power overseas drew heavily on the imagery and the rhetoric of Japan's own efforts at modernizing. Despite being shot through with contradictions and ambivalence, the idea of exporting the Western civilizing impulse to the indigenous population of Taiwan helped to justify, naturalize, and explain the effort to modernize Japan. Mimesis, in other words, imitation of Western imperialism, went hand in hand with mimesis of Western civilization. When you realize that Eskildsen is discussing an event from the first decade of Meiji, the breakneck pace of Japanese modernization and westernization becomes clear. Despite this, it wasn't until 1877, as we discussed last time, that the new leadership of Japan could sleep well at night, having finally put down the last bastion of resistance to the new order with the defeat of Saigo Takamori and his rebel samurai army. The next decade and a half would see Japan's dramatic transformation continue. Basil Hall Chamberlain, a British scholar who worked at the University of Tokyo and was a surprisingly astute observer of Meiji Japan, uh, has some useful uh, observations for understanding this ongoing metamorphosis. Uh, I should also mention that his 1912 essay, The Invention of a New Religion, which was about the creation of the modern uh, imperial institution, was quite insightful as well. But uh, here I want to quote from his 1890 book, Things Japanese. Chamberlain wrote, to have lived through the transition stage of modern Japan makes a man feel preternaturally old. For here he is in modern times, with the air full of talk about bicycles and bacilli and spheres of influence, and yet he himself can distinctly remember the Middle Ages. Old things pass away between a night and a morning. The Japanese boast that they have done in 30 or 40 years what it took Europe half as many centuries to accomplish. So with all that in mind, uh, we're going to continue today to examine the political, social, and economic changes in Meiji Japan, uh, focusing on the period from 1877 to 1895, and then also jumping ahead to 1905 uh, and the second of Japan's uh, major modern wars uh, in just the space of a decade the Sino-Japanese War with China in 1894-95, and then the Russo-Japanese War with Russia in 1904-1905. We're going to examine the uh, political, social, and economic changes in Meiji Japan, 
focusing on the period from 1877 to 1895 in the first half of this lecture. So this summary that you see here is only the first half of the lecture. Among other things, the second decade of Meiji witnessed the beginnings of backlash against the rapid pace of modernization, and also a sort of growing sense that something important and uniquely Japanese was being lost in this process. If the 1870s had been all about breakneck modernization, the 1880s were more measured, more anxious, more questioning. Still, the population grew, which is generally a good sign, a sign that people are you know, positive about the way things are going. Uh, between 1880 and 1900, Japan's population went from roughly 35 to 45 million. The 1880s also witnessed the advent of the so-called freedom and people's rights movement. Uh, and also the suppression of this excess of democracy by the oligarchy, uh, all of which culminated with the uh, Meiji Constitution of 1889. Public dissatisfaction, coupled with budget issues, the rise of political parties and contentious politics that threatened the hegemony of the founding fathers, the oligarchs, made the first years of the 1890s quite tempestuous. Japan learned a valuable lesson in the middle of the decade when its victorious war against China erased internal dissent and solved the state's money woes in one fell swoop. So this lecture will take us uh, as far as the Sino-Japanese War and then on to the Russo-Japanese War, which followed it. Along the way, we're going to discuss uh, some of these social, political, and economic developments uh, which animated Japan during these years. One theme which I think sort of runs through the lecture is what Andrew Gordon called, uh, what, uh, sorry, is, is uh, what Andrew Gordon said, um, as Japan's rulers were promoting change, they were anxiously seeking to manage and control it. In other words, uh, the Meiji government spent much of its time with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. In other words, trying simultaneously to unleash the power of popular participation, which they had witnessed in the West, and at the same time to keep the people themselves on a leash. So let's start with the economy, uh, which we didn't really talk very much about in the previous lecture. The new Meiji leaders, especially those who had traveled to the US and Europe, had become convinced that industrial capitalism was a key source of the West's power, and that Japan would have to follow the same path to industrialization if it hoped to compete internationally. As a latecomer, however, Japan could not wait for the trial and error process of the free market and private enterprise, especially because without government support, it would at least initially be next to impossible for Japanese businesses to make inroads into world markets or even to acquire the technologies and machinery needed to get started. So when Meiji Japan came to be known as the workshop of Asia, it was due to a combination of concerted government intervention and, and guidance as well, along with capitalist ingenuity. This model of state-led developmental capitalism, as it's called, had been adopted more or less from another latecomer, uh, Germany. Members of the Iwakura mission had returned to Japan, particularly impressed by develop developments in Germany, which had only unified in 1871. In other words, it was pretty much the same age as Japan. In fact, a little bit younger. Encouraged by the successes of newly unified Germany in building up its industrial economy, and rightly afraid that direct foreign investment was yet another way for Westerners to get their claws into Japan, the Meiji government took the initiative to develop Japan's economy. 
after 1890, uh, the government began to pay enormous, uh, excuse me, this, this uh, investment began to pay enormous aggregate dividends. Manufacturing input grew at roughly 5% per year compared to a global average of about three and a half. Uh, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here chronologically, but Japanese production of manufactured goods in 1915 was 2.5 times what it had been just 20 years earlier, to give you a, a sense of the, the pace of growth. On the other hand, the more immediate impact of Japan's Industrial Revolution, uh, and it was an industrial revolution from above rather than from below, the immediate impact was anything but positive for many small-scale family farmers, the hundreds of thousands of young women working in textile factories and match factories and brothels in the cities and many more. Mikiso Hane put it with, with uh, characteristic bluntness and uncharacteristic understatement uh, this way. He said, the Meiji Restoration did not materially improve the lot of the peasantry. Much of this had to do with draconian austerity policies in the 1880s, implemented by the finance minister to handle the revenue shortfall caused by the expenses of the Satsuma Rebellion, that 1877 Civil War. The, the uh, deflationary spiral that ensued, the so-called Matsukata deflation, named after the finance minister, uh, caused agricultural commodity prices to drop by as much as 50% between 1881 and 1884. So many farmers defaulted and lost their land to moneylenders, and they descended into poverty and sharecropping. Large-scale uprisings erupted in central Japan in, as a result in 1876. The government, which was at the time more worried about the, war, the upcoming war with Saigo Takamori, in other words, that Satsuma rebellion, appeased the peasantry with a tax reduction from 3% to 2.5%, but also began strengthening efforts to foster a strong individual identification with the state and with and the emperor by having the uh, by having his his imperial majesty tour the country in the last years of the decade. This, as much as anything, was the origin of the modern imperial cult. At the same time, mostly rural women and girls were subjected to long hours in terrible conditions in the factories of New Japan. Women made up 80% of the workplace in the text uh, of the workforce, excuse me, in the textiles industry. They worked 12 to 14 hours a day, and their wages were only 50 to 70% of those paid to men in the same industry, and only 30 to 50% when compared to men in heavy in heavy industries. These women lived usually in company dorms that were locked at night so they could not leave. Their memoirs, perhaps surprisingly, are not all negative. Some point out that even the low wages offered in these uh, uh, factories were better than what could be had in other jobs available for women. Others point out that harsh discipline and working conditions aside, they actually enjoyed the camaraderie with their fellow workers and dorm mates, and also that they ate better in the dorms than they ever had in their poor rural villages. Nevertheless, it's still true that tens of thousands of women were badly exploited, contracted tuberculosis, and died young. Low pay was explained away by entrepreneurs who claimed that only low labor costs would make them competitive against the established businesses of the industrialized West. Typically, profits that were extracted by the owners and stockholders, however, were not at all modest. The spinning company established by Shibasa Eiji, considered by many to be the leading and sort of representative capitalist of the Meiji era, paid dividends of 30% within just five years of opening. Wages remained unchanged. 
This is the sort of tragedy seen in developing economies around the world even now. The positive effects of modernization only accrued to regular Japanese many decades later, with housing, health, sanitation, and other measures of quality of life barely changing for most, outside the cities especially, until really the World War I era. In contrast to this more universal dark side to modernization and industrialization, Japan's successes were, at the time, unique. And as noted, they were driven by the government guidance and uh, by government guidance and investment. At the time of the restoration, in other words, the coup d'etat, the Meiji state inherited and retained title to all mineral and modern industrial plants that had been begun by the Bakufuan domains. So ironworks, munition plants, and shipyards existed in a narrow band of coastal and pre-restoration areas. The country's forests and major mines were now the state's too, and Japan wasted no time in exploiting these resources. Perhaps the most representative and important infrastructure project of early to mid-Meiji was the development of rail. As it did all over the world, the Iron Horse, as it was called, had a huge cultural as well as economic impact. Andrew Gordon wrote, it changed people's sense of time, of distance, and of social behavior. In addition to shrinking the world and connecting Japanese people to each other across a new national space in a way they never had been before, over time the schedules of the trains and the factories imbued in them a distinctly modern sense of time and punctuality. And of course, people were not the only uh, ones who were connected by rail. While coastal shipping continued to be very important, the railroad was the first truly efficient overland conveyance for freight, and it lowered transportation costs and shortened times, and, it, uh, and for this reason its economic effects were enormous, especially for important industries like mining and textiles. As in many industrializing economies, textiles led the way in Japan, and the country became a major world supplier of silk and cotton, roughly quadrupling its output of both between 1890 and 1913. Likewise, mining for coal and metals was a leading industrial sector. Mineral output skyrocketed in mid-Meiji. In just 20 years, between 1876 and 1896, output increased in an eye-popping 700%. And parenthetically, the Meiji experience with, with mining is interesting to think about in a country which considers itself and is considered by most to be resource poor. In any case, the first rail line, getting back to rail, uh, which stretched from Tokyo to Yokohama, was laid in 1872. By 1889, it, it had been extended as far as Kobe in western Japan, well over 500 kilometers. By that time, the original line and, and its extension were part of a network of over 2,200 kilometers of rail nationwide. A decade later, that number had more than doubled to over 5,500 kilometers. By this time, the majority of the rail network was private, after a boom in investment in the 1880s. Between 1886 and 1892, 14 new railway companies were founded, and by 1890, private companies controlled about 60% of the total track. This was both part of and a further impetus for a so-called private company boom. In other words, by around 1890, some businesses uh, of, and uh, in a few key sectors of the economy were gathering enough strength to succeed without state control. Japan would have liked to impl implement more protectionist policies to grow its industries, 
but the unequal treaties system, uh, which started with the American treaties in the 1850s, denied the, uh, denied the country the right to set its own tariffs. So foreign goods were imported cheaply and Japanese goods were exported uh, at, at quite a significant markup. Despite this, by mid-Meiji, the handful of zaibatsu, or financial conglomerates, that would eventually dominate the economy were beginning to take their modern shape. Mitsubishi, for example, started out as a trading company owned by the Tosa domain. It was privatized in the Meiji era when it used its strengths in shipping to dominate that market and branch out into coal and other industries. Mitsui and Sumitomo the uh, Mitsui and Sumitomo zaibatsu grew out of Tokugawa-based merchant houses. In fact, the heads of these households were former samurai who brought their martial discipline and organization into the world of commerce and finance. Mitsubishi and Yasuda, on the other hand, were founded by Meiji entrepreneurs. All four of these major zaibatsu uh, began to take their modern shape in the 1870s and 80s, taking advantage of government ties and industrial synergies. The fortune and acumen that became Mitsui began in 1637 with a textile store in Edo uh, and also in Kyoto. Uh, this is a famous store in Japan called Echigoya, and spawned, among many other things, the more famous Mitsukoshi department store, Japan's sort of premier de department store. Mitsui also ran currency exchange and money lending operations, and starting in 1691 was an official fiscal agent of the shogunate, authorized to send Wakufu receipts of funds from Osaka to Edo. Uh, funds could then be transferred in the form of goods sold at a profit in the consumption center of Edo. Mitsui kept loaning uh, money to the Bakufu until its fall, but wisely also cultivated financial and personal ties with the eventually victorious other side. The family built on these ties after 1868, handling a portion of the government's new tax collection operations, and from this it founded a bank in 1876. The same year it founded a general trading company. Soon thereafter, the Minister of Public Works, Ito Hirobumi, offered Mitsui Trading Company an exclusive contract for sale of coal from the government's mine at Mike, and so on and so on. In other words, each of the Zaibatsu had a specialty, uh, shipping, rail, engineering, mining, etc., but they all created vast networks of subsidiaries with the Zaibatsu Bank as the principal investor. This was a hedge, and a wise one, against uh, the volatile economy of modernizing Japan. In other words, even if trade experienced a setback, there was mining. When mining was down, there was finance. When finance went bad, there was textiles, etc. Though they all exploited ties to government, the Zaibatsu astutely maintained a sort of Goldilocks distance. The elite managerial classes of these uh, and other big businesses mixed ideals of service to the nation with a drive for personal wealth. There was no real conflict between the two. Japan's successes would further their own, and their successes would further Japan's. Mitsui's successors were warned not to become too involved with government, for that could be costly and dangerous. And the code is perhaps best summed up in, a, in the, the sentence here on the screen. Never forget that we are merchants. Dealing with government is a sideline of our business. Notwithstanding this caveat, the development policies of the state were enormously important to the growth of the zaibatsu, and indeed to that of other industries as well. The state, as it has done and does in other industrialized and industrializing economies, provided the infrastructure uh, with which these conglomerates plied their many trades. The government, in other words, took the lead in promoting, indeed enabling, the development of capital-intensive higher technology industries. 
For example, the Meiji state founded Japan's first silk factory in 1870, its first iron and steel mill in 1896. It also subsidized shipping and shipbuilding, machining and engineering, and did its best to nurture private sector heavy industries especially. These policies of industrial promotion were the brainchild of Okubo Toshimichi as much as anyone. Though the men whom the press began to refer to as the oligarchs, the gendo, ruled primarily by consensus and collectivism, and always in the emperor's name, Okubo, who had created the internal ministry and made himself its head, a position which not incidentally gave him control over the police, was the de facto leader of the Meiji government from October 1873 until he was assassinated in May of 1878. Uh, he was assassinated by a samurai who was angry about his role in putting down the Satsuma rebellion. Uh, interestingly, uh, Okubo himself was a Satsuma samurai, uh, who also happens to have a fantastic beard. His biographer called him the Bismarck of Japan. Uh, he was, he's probably best known uh, outside of Japan as the bad guy in Tom Cruise's silly Last Samurai movie. His great-great-grandson is the former prime minister and current deputy prime minister, Asol Taro. Uh, who's also the finance minister uh, and a Hitler admirer and an old man who tells old people to hurry up and die so that the pension system and healthcare system can be unburdened. Anyway, uh, let's switch gears and examine the changing social climate of mid-Meiji. In cultural and intellectual terms, the first decade or so of the new Meiji era was dominated by a frantic scramble to translate and adapt Western concepts, practices, and products in order to become civilized. The second decade saw increasing concerns that something was being lost, at least threatened in that process. In part, this was related to the distinctly modern phenomenon we call nationalism. So it's a, it's a bit of a controversial subject and we've talked about it uh, in previous lectures as well. Um, and opinions both considered and unconsidered, both scholarly and non-scholarly, differ on this topic. But it's generally uh, accepted that Japan is, at least in some form, a modern construction. Uh, in other words, that it's the result of the encounter between the old Tokugawa regime and Western imperialism in the 19th century. Westerners treated the people they found in the archipelago as if they were all one people, in other words, the Japanese. And if you think about it, a great deal of our identity comes from being treated as if. Uh, for individuals, this begins at home and continues in school, in the workplace, in society at large. So Japan became Japan and the Japanese became the Japanese in significant part because they were treated as the Japanese and as Japan by the Western powers. And then from treating others that way in the Meiji period uh, and being treated that way in the army, in the schools, uh, in society, etc. Now, as we've already talked about, and that's not to say there was no sense of a shared social or political identity prior to the 19th century. Uh, what I'm saying is that there was a, a strong sense of personal identification with the interests of a state called Japan, a nation called the Japanese, uh, instead of, for example, uh, that sort of strong identification with the family, the village, your occupational group, etc. Um, and that this was mostly uh, prior to the modern period confined to elites, right? It was more of a class identity vis-a-vis -vis other Asian elites. So these elites identified horizontally with others uh, of the same status, uh, geography aside. 
rather than identifying sort of, I guess you'd say, vertically with the hoi polloi of farmers, fishermen, merchants, artisans, etc., uh, who were sort of under them in the lands that they ruled. Um, this, by the way, was not unique to Japan. Um, all of this is not to deny the existence of strong shared culture in the Tokugawa period. Um, I touched on this before. Uh, it's one of the really interesting characteristics of early modern Japan, of the Edo period. Uh, but there are noteworthy differences between Tokugawa and Meiji Japan in terms of the way that that identification uh, worked, particularly the individual to state, uh, individual to nation relationship. In Edo Japan, group affiliation was defined mostly in local or in status terms. But in Meiji Japan, uh, that sense of identification was reconfigured so that loyalty and obedience uh, were to the nation. Uh, there was a direct individual relationship between the emperor at the center and the peak uh, and each individual subject scattered across the land. In other words, Japan was becoming a modern state and a modern nation. Uh, on the rise of Meiji cultural nationalism, uh, and I just want to talk about this a little bit more here, there are two things we, we really ought to think about. Um, one has to do with the place of loss in the uh, formation of modern Japanese national culture. Uh, the other is more about the short-term effects of rising cultural nationalism in mid-Meiji. So first I want to talk about loss. Uh, there is a lot to say about this. The topic is very rich and very interesting. Um, briefly, I want to draw from Marilyn Ivey's uh, notoriously difficult book, uh, Discourses of the Vanishing. Ivey observed that when internal difference was suppressed in the service of creating a single homogeneous modern nation state, and when difference from the West was defined as backwardness or a lack of civilization, this had profound and far-reaching psychological consequences, consequences that continue to play out in post-war and then in contemporary Japan. Ivy's key word is vanishing, um, and she uses this to describe phenomena which are passing away but not quite, suspended between presence and absence. And what she means is that these vanishing practices, discourses, phenomena, ideas, etc. are, uh, in contemporary Japan, situated on the edge of presence, where they, and these are her words, live out partial destinies of spectacular recovery as the essence of Japanese culture. Ivy calls this the double movement, whereby that which was marginalized by the advent of nationalist modernity in the Meiji period, uh, peasant practices, superstitions, the folkloric, etc., was in the same movement objectified as most essentially traditional. This double inscription as both superfluous and essential, marginal and traditional, is necessary for loss to emerge as recoverable. Now that's, uh, like I said, um, Ivy is notoriously hard to follow, but in other words, what she's saying is that difference both internal within Japan and external between Japan and the West became the defining feature of what is authentically Japanese. So these vanishing uh, practices, ideas, etc., these newly minted, authentic, quote-unquote, features of Japaneseness were always threatened. They were always on the verge of being lost. They were always vanishing, and they always needed protection. In the short-term context of mid-Meiji, the growing unease with the uh, wholesale modernization slash westernization of the 1870s led to the invention of something that we would call Japanese culture. 
there's a, a wonderful book on the, the uh, subject called Mirror of Modernity, uh, which uh, I do highly recommend. Um, and as the, the book shows, the supposedly um, innate, unique cultural traits of uh, Japan, uh, harmony, um, sports and martial arts like judo and sumo, uh, practices such as bonsai and the tea ceremony, all of these were were given modern forms and they were given modern special meanings as, as traditions. They weren't invented out of thin air, but older cultural forms and practices and discourses were reshaped. They were given new meanings. They were made to be representative of something that was distinctly Japanese, a, a, a special unique Japanese essence, something that defined Japan uh, as different from the global standard, in other words, from the West. Uh, Andrew Gordon, uh, who's one of the contributors, summed it up this way. No theater, for example, survived in part because government officials promoted it as a Japanese parallel to Western opera. They treated visitors such as former U.S. President Ulysses Grant in 1879 to command performances. No performance took on ritualistic aspects that had not been present before. Modern martial arts such as judo, sports such as sumo wrestling, and arts such as the cultivation of bonsai plants were both transformed in practice and took on symbolic meanings as emblems of Japaneseness for the first time. The effects of this rising cultural nationalism can be seen in the arts too, where new works explored themes seen as distinctly Japanese. Intellectuals and policymakers were influenced too, and cultural nationalism meshed with statist nationalism. It also began to affect concrete policies in education, for example. During the 1880s, a more conservative philosophy began to permeate the educational system. A conscious effort was made to replace the more libertarian, individualistic values that were taught in the schools with traditional virtues, quote unquote, such as loyalty to the emperor, filial piety, and benevolence and righteousness. The teaching of morals was made compulsory and many of the textbooks then in use, like Fukuzawa's works and the translations of Western texts on moral science, were replaced by books that were Confucian or Shinto in orientation. Japanese history came to be emphasized in an effort to acquaint students with the virtues of their own country. This conservative backlash in education culminated with the 1890 Imperial Rescript on Education. This document, which was heavily influenced by an 1879 text by a reactionary anti-modern Confucianist, used Confucian vocabulary to define education in relation to service to the state, i.e. service to the emperor. In other words, it was a great deal like the other rescript we mentioned uh, last time, the rescript to soldiers and sailors. As the values in that document, loyalty, patriotism, service, were pounded into the heads of military men, those in the uh, educational rescript were implanted through daily repetition in the minds of school children, because a copy of this rescript was distributed to every school in the Japanese empire, along with a portrait of the emperor. Together, they were venerated. And so in June of 1896, a school teacher at an ordinary elementary school in rural Iwate died trying to recover the sacred photo and document during the great Sanriku tsunami. The imperial uh, photograph had thus become a sacred object worthy of one's life in just a half a dozen years. And another 30 or so school teachers would repeat simil fatal, uh, similar fatal heroics over the next half century. 
In any case, according to Benjamin Duke's history of the foundations of the uh, modern educational system, this 1890 rescript put the system on a firm, sustainable footing for the first time. Duke wrote that the curriculum biased toward uh, Western science and mathematics continued, but the moral foundation of the school based on the imperial rescript of 1890 would henceforth stem from Confucianism, with imperial ideology at the core. Whether or not we agree with this, uh, that this is a, a balance, uh, Duke's observation that the amalgamation of Western academic studies and Eastern moral virtues, in other words, a sort of wakon yosai uh, kind of idea, uh, you know, uh, Japanese spirit, Western technology, became the hallmark of Japanese education as it entered the 20th century. The education rescript was issued the same year as the uh, Meiji Constitution. Uh, the first one had actually been hurriedly uh, drawn up in 1868 uh, with the Charter Oath as its first uh, uh, first article, um, but that was a kind of purpose statement for the new regime. This second and more formal constitution was a reaction to political and social developments in the 1880s that angered and threatened the Meiji oligarchs. Most representative of these was the so-called Freedom and People's Rights Movement, the Jiuminkeng Undo of the 1880s. What developed into a movement for popular rights actually began with the disaffection of Itaka Kitaisuke, uh, who was, along with Saigo Takamori, one of the two sort of major instigators of the 1877 Satsuma Rebellion. Unlike Saigo, uh, Itagaki chose to fight the governing clique of Satsuma and Choshu, uh, men like Okubo Toshimichi, with rhetoric and protest instead of uh, you know, on the battlefield. So in 1874, um, he and a band of merry men submitted a protest to the government on its handling of the Korea affair. Uh, in it, he promoted a greater public participation in government through a parliamentary constitutional system. Participation and debate should lead to consensus and harmony rather than division and discord, while keeping people out of politics would, keep, uh, would leave controversial and difficult ideas unresolved, and that would adversely affect national unity of purpose and opinion. Or at least that's how Itagaki saw it. By the late 1870s, despite the failure of his initial foray into popular rights advocacy, Itagaki's idea that Japan ought to adopt constitutional parliamentary government rather than oligarchy had gained significant popular support. Between 1879 and 1881, over 200 local groups around Japan were formed to push some version or another of this agenda. Importantly, the membership of these associations consisted of both peasants and ex-samurai, and were found in both the cities and the villages. Diverse groups of Japanese, in other words, found common cause in agitating for greater popular participation in government. Though the absolute numbers of participants in these groups was small, never before had such grassroots activism taken deep root in Japanese society. Nevertheless, political parties were not recognized as having any legitimacy at this point, but the popular rights activists formed two anyway. Itagaki formed the Liberal Party, the Jiuto, in 1881, followed by the Kaishinto, the Constitutional Reform Party, in 1882, uh, by, which was founded by uh, Okuma Shigenobu. These two parties composed bylaws, uh, collected membership dues, and held national conventions to agree on policy platforms. They published books and journals, they had rallies and fundraisers, and they submitted petitions with tens of thousands of signatures demanding a constitution and a parliament. They did not, they could not, participate in elections. 
Both were national parties, but while the Liberal Party was an outgrowth of the popular rights movement and had a membership that was mostly peasants and rural landowners and entrepreneurs, uh, supported by progressive intellectuals and journalists, the Reform Party, the Kaishinto, was populated more by right-leaning urban intellectuals and businessmen. The Reform Party's uh, relatively mild advocacy for a sort of British parliamentary-style government and its appearance uh, of being respectable uh, because of close ties to capitalist interests and the propertied classes allowed it to survive the government crackdown on popular rights movements in 1883 and 1884. The Liberal Party, on the other hand, fell apart under government pressure in 1884. Um, it was, however, revived immediately upon implementation of the Constitution in 1889. And it's worth pointing out that government pressure is an understatement. At both the prefectural and national levels, authoritarian crackdowns ensued. So in 1883, for instance, the governor of Fukushima began arresting both Liberal Party members and supporters. Sword-wielding policemen broke up protests. Back in Tokyo, government officials used developments in Fukushima as leverage to launch a flotilla of aggressive suppression measures including restricting the right to submit petitions and intensified press censorship. Crackdowns continued through 1884, by which time the Reform Party was weakened and the Liberal Party disbanded. The popular rights movement and the appearance of political parties were together a troubling challenge to the hegemony of the new Meiji government, as these draconian counterattacks uh, counter show. But in fact, it was rooted in the same ideas that the new state itself had adopted. The strongest states in the world were in the West. They had constitutions. Japanese people wanted to form a strong state, so they needed a constitution too. The premise of this syllogism was that national power was of primary importance. How could the Meiji government, itself learning from the West to promote statism, argue with this? At the height of the scale and intensity of this grassroots political mobilization, the Freedom and People's Rights Movement, the Meiji government appeared to cave in, uh, declaring that the emperor would announce a constitution by 1890. In typical fashion, Yamagoto Ari, uh, Yamagata Aritomo wrote in a letter that every day we wait, the evil poison of popular rights agitation will spread more and more over the provinces, penetrate into the minds of the young, and inevitably produce unfathomable evils. Though Yamagata was particularly blunt and colorful and paranoid in his expression, this was more or less the majority opinion among the oligarchs. The constitution was not then intended as a concession to popular rights, so much as a way to head them off. The clique which I have been referring to as oligarchs, the Gendo, was in fact an extra-legal group without explicit authority ruling on behalf of the emperor by inducing him to appoint them to posts or adopt their positions. A constitution would solidify their legitimacy to rule if worded right. And that is why the constitution, when it was eventually adopted, was modeled on the arch-conservative Prussian constitution of 1854. Moreover, having the constitution handed down to the people as a gift from the emperor was a way to solidify the imperial figure and institution as the center and foundation of modern Japan. The entire first chapter, consisting of 17 articles, is devoted to glorifying and clarifying the prerogatives of the emperor. On that basis alone, there can be no doubt about its purpose. But for the real skeptic, 
Ito Hirobumi, head of the Privacy Council at the time, confirmed that, quote, the Constitution was drafted to strengthen the authority of the ruler and make it weightier. For this reason, uh, Michael Lewis noted that the Meiji Constitution, a gift from the Emperor, was long on duties and short on freedoms. And it also left out many things, uh, or at least left them ambiguous. There was no word about how to form a cabinet, or how would prime ministers be elected? No help there. In fact, the most important function of the oligarchs, which long after the end of Meiji was uh, they continued, was to choose the prime minister themselves by quote-unquote advising the emperor, of course. But back to the constitution. How about an explanation of the government's executive powers? No. Despite the articles on the emperor's position, there was just nothing to see there. It was a very frustrating document in this sense. Nevertheless, coming just over two decades after 260 plus years of Bakufu, uh, the Tokugawa Bakufu and many centuries of Bakufu before that, uh, coming only two decades after that, the new constitution uh, and the inauguration of the first uh, modern parliamentary government, the Diet, the following year, represent, uh, or at least confirm, some basic fundamental changes in Japanese politics. We already heard from Basil Hall Chamberlain earlier uh, but it's worth emphasizing that historians looking back more than a century later have remained uniformly impressed by the extraordinary pace of institutional transformation that Japan achieved in the first two decades of the Meiji period, even if that did not translate into improved quality of life for the majority of Japanese people, at least not quite yet. As Marius Jansen wrote, the process had not been without its problems, but Japan had emerged as the first non-Atlantic country to make a go of constitutional government and representative politics. Japan had reason to be proud. In preparation for the institution of a constitutional parliament, peerage, nobility, had been established in 1885, made up of about 500 newly titled princes, counts, barons, and the like. Under the constitution, these nobles became members of the upper house of the diet, uh, called the House of Peers, while an elected body would populate the lower house, the House of Representatives. Peers, which was arch-conservative by nature, had veto power over just about everything except the budget, uh, in yet another attempt to curtail the influence of popular participation. Uh, even the budget, which was ostensibly the purview of the lower house, the House of Repre Representatives, had a built-in loophole to avoid stalemates and restrain elected officials. In other words, if a new budget could not be agreed upon, the previous year's budget would simply carry over. Now, once the constitution was adopted, the oligarchs realized that they would have to respond to popular will through the uh, voiced through representatives uh, more than they wanted to or had expected to. In uh, Miki Sohane's estimation, in theory, the people were guaranteed certain rights and liberties in the constitution, but these were restricted within the limits of the law. Hence, in reality, the Japanese subjects were only given very limited rights and freedom. As if to rub it in, a provision of the 1890 police law outlawed all political activity by women, including attending political meetings or even discussing politics. In a supremely Orwellian move, women were even banned from discussing the ban. As one of the most famous critics of Japanese militarism, Ienaga Saburo, put it, the constitution established a parliamentary system under which elected representatives in the diet participated in government decisions, but it reserved a very broad area of authority to the emperor. Executive agencies acting for the emperor could function without diet approval. 
the right of supreme command and the right to determine the size of military forces were both included in this sweeping executive power. Um, and that turns out to be foreshadowing for some of the darker days that were to come in the 1930s and 40s. Predictably, perhaps, the Constitution, uh, the 1890 Meiji Constitution, was unpopular. Instead of mollifying the public, it actually added to growing dissatisfaction. In addition to anger about the lack of popular representation that had erupted uh, with the Jiu Minken movement, the failure of the government to secure revision of the unequal treaties, and a host of other grievances, uh, there, were now growing, there was now growing dissatisfaction with the high-handed manner in which the Constitution had literally been handed down. Remember, it was a gift from the emperor. Uh, there was also anger with the fact that the Privy Council, the, uh, the oligarchs, the Genro, um, continued to function as this extra-legal, extra-constitutional body, even after uh, the Constitution was officially adopted in 1889 and enacted in 1892. In fact, the term Gendo, uh, the oligarchs, only uh, comes into use in 1892, uh, after the Constitution is, in, uh, is already in place. And the Constitution's definition of the Japanese people as subjects rather than citizens uh, was also a matter uh, that, that angered many people. Public disapproval of the Constitution, on which so many had hung hopes of an enlightened rather than authoritarian parliamentary regime, was one factor making the first several diet sessions uh, very contentious and very ugly. Things developed so quickly that the emperor was forced to intervene in the fourth parliamentary session in order to get a budget passed. This was quite uncharacteristic. Uh, it was a demoralizing reminder to the opposition politicians and their supporters that ultimately their power was severely circumscribed and limited though. The first years of the 1890s continued to buzz with discontent and not just about domestic affairs either. Japan was still subject to the unequal treaties with the Western powers, which in the context of rising popular nationalism and simultaneous frustration with the shape of the new constitutional government resulted in widespread sustained public dissatisfaction and anger. So, of course, it was time for a war. Japan remained a, uh, a second-class citizen, at best, in the world, uh, in the world dominated by Western imperial powers. The unequal treaties were still in effect, as was a sort of patronizing uh, racism against the Japanese that acknowledged, yes, uh, Japan's accomplishments had been very impressive since 1853, but there were always sort of implicit caveats. They were impressive for an Asian nation or because we opened the country. The drive to advance national interests, to catch up with, to even surpass the West and become a first-class world power was in many ways the animating force in Meiji Japan. Uh, and awareness of both Japan's weakness and its potential were per, uh, pervasive in the thoughts and actions of many Japanese. The future finance minister, Takahashi Korekio, uh, in a farewell address to students at uh, Tokyo Agricultural College, said, Gentlemen, it is your duty to advance the status of Japan, bring her to a position of equality with the civilized powers, and then carry on to build a foundation from which we shall surpass them all. And this really summed up quite nicely uh, the sort of general sense among at least Japanese elites at the time. Meanwhile, since being forced to sign the Treaty of Kanghua in 1876, Korea was struggling with some of the same issues of modernization and westernization as Japan, but it was doing so with less success. Korea was compelled by the treaty to open trade ports to Japan, 
and the Japanese were pressing their economic advantage through trade. Here, it'll be helpful to recall one concept which I introduced in the first lecture on the Tokugawa period, uh, and also to introduce a new one. The idea we need to recall is the core periphery relationship uh, you might recall uh, was associated with Immanuel Wallerstein. Uh, as a refresher, I described the internal relationship of the Bakufu to the semi-autonomous domains of the daimyo as core periphery, meaning that it was characterized by unequal exchange between a strong core and weaker peripheries. Generally, the peripheries produce non-value-added goods from primary industries, in other words, from agriculture, from fishing, from mining, etc. And they also supply cheap labor, labor and captive markets for value-added goods from the core. The core, which is usually characterized by a strong state and strong military, transforms the produce, minerals, and labors of the peripheries into value-added goods that can be sold at profit. In a context like the international relationship between Japan and Korea that began in the mid-1870s, uh, this can approach an arrangement which we call informal empire, uh, and that's the new term I want to introduce here. In world history, informal empire is perhaps most closely associated with the British. The term is used to describe the spheres of influence developed in foreign countries or regions that have not been formally colonized. Formal empire begins with the political move to annex or conquer a foreign area and incorporate it into the legal system of the home regime as a colony or something like that. In contrast, informal empire is the extension of political, commercial, military, and other national interests without the official process of colonization. This is often a highly desirable relationship from the perspective of the imperial power uh, because it can usually extract all the profit without having to expend much, if any, in terms of resources and effort in order to govern. So I think it's probably obvious already where this discussion is leading, but to be clear, with the Treaty of Kanghua, Japan took the first steps to making Korea part of an informal empire defined by a core periphery, in other words, Japan-Korea relationship. In the late 1870s, Japan was not manufacturing large quantities of value-added goods, so instead, Japanese merchants began to uh, resell American and European manufactured goods. On the other hand, they began to import rice and soybeans from the peninsula. 80% of Korea's imports in the late 1870s, almost all of which were agricultural, headed to Japan. Japan immediately profited from the influx of cheap Korean rice and soy, and from the export of Western finished goods. Simultaneously, Japan tried to pry Korea free from the cultural and political influence of China. To make its own informal empire, it would have to challenge that of the Qing dynasty of China at the time. The strategic position of the Korean peninsula, as well as the relative weakness of the Cholson kingdom, made it a, a ready target. If it was controlled by, or at least deferential to Japan, Korea would be a buffer zone against Korea, excuse me, against Russia and China. If it was controlled by either one of those powers, however, it would be, as a German advisor to the Meiji government put it, quote, a dagger pointed at the heart of Japan. In 1881, uh, with the idea of establishing influence at court and blunting that dagger, Japan sent military advisors to the court of the pro-reform king, King Kojong, to help modernize the Korean army. This, too, was mimetic imperialism, as Eskildsen would call it as British, German, French, and American advisors had assisted Japan's military modernization and made a handsome profit, uh, Japan was now attempting to leverage the first modernized East Asian military into influence and profit for itself. 
there were several reasons for Japan's continued attention to Korea. There was, of course, the national security angle, the dagger uh, idea, um, but there were also economic interests. Ultimately, the Japanese hoped to continue the pattern of mimetic imperialism with a stable sphere of influence, in other words, an informal empire, an informal colony in Korea, perhaps a formal colony, colony if necessary, and this would give Japan even greater parity with the West. As the military historian Sarah Payne noted, for the Japanese government to, concede in, to, to succeed in its plans, it needed a pretext to go to war in Korea. This would be provided by the deteriorating internal situation there. It would modify Kipling's idea of the white man's burden to create a civilizing mission for itself in Korea. This would become the moral justification to legitimize its actions. A headline from one newspaper encapsulated this idea by describing Japanese-Korean relations as teacher-student relations. Initially, however, Japan's meddling in Korean affairs touched off intense political rivalry between pro-China, in other words, conservative, and pro-Japan, in other words, reformist factions. I'm going to skip the details here, but Japan and China sent troops to Korea in response to various crises, turning the peninsula into a real powder keg. Both Japan and China wanted to press their interests in Korea, but neither wanted a war. So representatives met and they hammered out an agreement to withdraw forces from the peninsula, and also, crucially, to provide advance notification should there be any need to redeploy. In effect, the agreement temporarily reestablished China as the dominant foreign power in Korea. With this setback, Japan turned once again to treaty revision as the center of its foreign policy. So Russia had been constructing the Trans-Siberian Railway in 1891, and Japan was concerned that this would enable Russia to uh, expand economically into China and then into Korea, threatening Japan with that old the old dagger in a new hand. In fact, by the last decade of the 19th century, it was clear that China, Russia, and Japan were all embroiled in an ugly menage a trois for hegemony in East Asia, and that Korea and later Manchuria, would be the grounds on which those battles were fought. A major breakthrough came for Japan in the summer of 1894 with the Treaty of Commerce and Navigation between Great Britain and Japan. Among other things, the treaty provided for the, establishment, uh, for the excuse me, abolishment of extraterritoriality. And Britain at the time was the greatest power the world had ever known, so its recognition of Japan sent ripples across the world. Over the next 15 years, all of the unequal treaties would be undone. Meanwhile, though, Korea was struggling to put down an internal rebellion by a sect known as the Tonghak, or Eastern Learning School. The Tonghak were pseudo-Christian and anti-Christian. They were xenophobic, reactionary, and millenarian, and they were bent on overthrowing the government. So Korea appealed to China for assistance. China sent troops. So did Japan, uh, ostensibly to protect Japanese subjects and property. By early July of, uh, of that year, 8,000 Japanese men were stationed in Korea, and all of the arrangements were made for an all-out war. By the end of the month, the Japanese press was predicting that war was inevitable. The foreign press quickly began to suspect the same thing, accusing the Japanese of provoking a war. Again, I'm going to sort of gloss over the details here, but the upshot of it all was that Japan's aggressive stance forced the hand of the Chinese who were left with the bad option of going to war with Japan or the other bad option of giving up a centuries old suzerainty of great strategic and cultural importance in Korea. 
The Chinese commander had been the dynasty's most recent ambassador to Japan, and he understood the military discrepancy between the two nations better than anyone. Knowing himself to be outmatched by the Japanese, he worked behind the scenes to secure European intervention. He failed. Uh, this was a pattern that would repeat itself in the Second Sino-Japanese War of the 1930s and 40s, because the Western powers were unwilling to commit to a, a war uh, to support China. When the Chinese general couldn't find outside help, he resorted to uh, getting reinforcements uh, from within China, overriding serious misgivings back in Beijing. These troops would arrive after the war had already begun, but they did, in fact, arrive. In July, uh, Tokyo declared war. Less than two weeks later, Japanese troops took the uh, Korean king hostage, declaring that Kojong would remain in their custody until the internal reforms Japan demanded had been carried out. That afternoon, they disarmed the Korean garrisons in the capital, and it became an occupying army. The regent, uh, known as the Taewongung, was reinstated. The anti-reform queen's family was banished, and all treaties with China were renounced. The Japanese-led reform program put in place, uh, even while the war continued, uh, sought to eliminate nepotism, waste, corruption, and sinecures in government while modernizing the tax system, the military, the schools, the judiciary, etc. It was a wholesale crash course in modernization, uh, and it was really uh, built on the same model as Meiji Japan itself. Korea resisted, but as one Western observer noted with admiration, Japan was, quote, ramming independence and reforms down the king's throat in a really masterful way. The war itself was a string of dramatic Japanese victories, mostly at sea. On November 21st, having destroyed 8 out of 12 of China's capital ships, Japan took the heavily fortified outpost of Port Arthur, at the tip of the Liaodong Peninsula. The Chinese Navy was completely destroyed in February of the following year, leaving the war all but decided. Japan's forces were well-trained, well-equipped, highly motivated, and well-supplied. Their armaments were superior to the Chinese, as were their commanders. The better organized, more agile, more imaginative, more modern Japanese uh, meant that the war concluded in less than a year with a complete Japanese victory, an outcome reflected in the Treaty of Shimonoseki, signed on April 17, 1895. For China, the terms of this treaty were entirely brutal, and the ramifications were devastating. Territorial loss was severe. China had to give up Taiwan, the Pescadores, and the Liaodong Peninsula. The peninsula was of enormous strategic importance for the, uh, because it had the year-round port at Dalian, uh, Port Arthur. In other words, ships could sail in and out there uh, throughout the year. It doesn't ice over. Korean independence from China was affirmed, which opened it up to additional Japanese inf interference or influence, depending on how you look at it, I guess. Economically, Japan gained railroad building rights in southern Manchuria, also the right for Japanese vessels to navigate the Yangtze River and the right for Japanese businesses to establish factories in Shanghai. Four trade ports were opened. These measures were uh, in particular uh, opened up the way to further Japanese economic expansion on the continent. There was also a huge indemnity, equivalent to about 360 million yen, which covered all of Japan's expenditures, and thus was able to make its monetary system, uh, take its monetary system onto the gold standard, which was a point of great national pride. Membership in these two clubs, the Imperialist Club and the Gold Standard Club, reinforced Japan's view of itself as a rising power. 
Uh, it's interesting to note that 300 million of these 360 million yen went directly to military spending. Most of the rest went to investments in heavy industry, in other words, steel, shipping, shipbuilding, etc. But the uh, amount, 360 million, exceeded Japan's national budget for the previous year, 1893, by about 4.5 times. Uh, this was all very bad for China. Uh, but you have to remember, additionally, that the concessions that Japan extorted from China were immediately extended to all of the other powers through the provisions of the Most Favored Nation Clause, which was at the center of the system of unequal treaties. So, in other words, any concessions that uh, China had to make to Japan, it had to make to everyone. As the New York Times noted on August 4th, in treating with China, the Japanese have kept China at the distance at which the nation is held by all civilized powers as a semi-civilized nation, at a time when Japan is securing with the civilized powers treaties of amity and commerce that treat Japan as an equal. This is not indicated by the language of the treaty, but it is a fact. This accurately reflected the mood in the Atlantic powers at the time. Few had expected a Japanese victory, but they were resoundingly impressed by, by it when it came, as well as with the reforms that Japan was carrying out in Korea. Japan's accomplishments were roundly praised in the West, many echoing Basil Hall Chamberlain's observations of 1890. For example, the U.S. Navy Secretary proclaimed that Japan has leaped almost at one bound to a place among the great nations of the earth. This small island kingdom has, excuse me, uh, within a few decades stridden over ground traversed by other nations only within centuries. Other American and European observers saw Japan as the bringer of freedom and progress to both China and Korea and the Japanese as clearly superior to their neighbors. The U.S. president at the time, Theodore Roosevelt, called it, quote, nonsense to speak of the Chinese and the Japanese as of the same race. Others concurred. China was corrupt to the core, ill-governed, lacking cohesion, and without meanings of, means of defending itself. China as a political entity is doomed, according to one British China expert at the time. Another Brit, uh, Sir Henry Norman gave the other side of this narrative, calling the Japanese, uh, one assumes like the British, a martial and proud race with marvelous intelligence and untiring energy and enthusiasm. Commenting on Japan's reforms of Korea, the North American Review wrote, the success of Japan in Korea means reform and progress. The success of the, Ch of the Chinese means the forcing back of the Koreans to oriental sluggishness, to superstition, ignorance, and anti-foreign sentiment. It is a conflict between modern civilization, as represented by Japan, and barbarism, or a hopelessly antiquated civilization, by China. In a report to Washington, the U.S. ambassador to China, with almost admirable tone deafness, praised Japan for doing for China what the United States did for Japan. She has learned Western civilization, and she is forcing it on her unwieldy neighbor. So now Japan had a toehold on imperial power status and had certainly become one of, if not the, power to be reckoned with in East Asia. The Japan aficionado Lafcadio Hearn summed it all up quite nicely when he wrote, without losing a single ship or a single battle, Japan broke down the power of China, enlarged her own territory, and changed the whole political face of the Far East. Not surprisingly, Japan was flush with pride. Fukuzawa Yukichi wrote, one can scarcely enumerate all of our civilized undertakings since the Restoration. Yet among all these enterprises, 
the one thing none of us expected was the establishment of Japan's imperial prestige in a great war. When I think of our marvelous fortune, I feel as though in a dream and can only weep tears of joy. The great journalist Tokutomi Soho made an equally proud but far more philosophically interesting remark. Before, we did not know ourselves, and the world did not yet know us. But now that we have tested our strength, we know ourselves, and we are known by the world. Moreover, we know we are known by the world. Unfortunately for Japan, this glory was not to last. Later that year, Germany, France, and most importantly Russia, staged what is known to history as the Triple Intervention. You'll also hear it called the Tripartite Intervention. As I mentioned earlier, uh, it had been clear for some time that Russia was seeking to establish a stronger political and economic foothold in its eastern frontier regions. The Trans-Siberian Railway was intended to connect far eastern Russia to the European metropole, uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg, making it easier to transport military and civilian goods and passengers. But without a year-round ice-free port, the utility of this enormous undertaking would be greatly diminished. As one diplomat warned the New York Times in November 1895, do you think that Russia would expend 300 million rubles in building a great line of railway through Siberia and be satisfied with a terminal which is closed to navigation four months of the year? The obvious target then was Port Arthur, which was in Japanese hands as a result of the Shimonoseki settlement, uh, the settlement of the Sino-Japanese War. So the three European powers politely suggested to Japan that in the name of Asian peace, it would be best to give up its territorial concession. Tokyo understood this thinly veiled threat and saw very little choice but to uh, release its hold on Gaodong in order to avoid war with Russia. Japan's American and British allies looked the other way as the Meiji government was humiliated on the world stage. The additional 30 million tile indemnity paid by China was no antidote for the sting. Japan learned harsh lessons from this. Once again, the eloquent Tokutomi Soho uh, capably summarized the public mood. The retrocession of Liaodong dominated the rest of my life. After hearing about it, I became almost a different person psychologically. Say what you will, it happened because we were not strong enough. What it came down to was that sincerity and justice did not amount to a thing if you were not strong enough. Japan's progress would ultimately depend on military strength. Tokutomi and the rest of the very vocal and jingoistic Japanese press, which had in fact been pressing during the war for Japan to conquer all the way to Beijing, uh, and uh, as the equally opinionated and jingoistic American press had urged the first President Bush to crusade all the way to Baghdad in 1991, uh, this press exhorted the public to remember national humiliation. The phrase, never forget national humiliation, is now closely associated with China where it's a ubiquitous national slogan used by children to for practice their characters, for example, um, and refers to the so-called century of humiliation from the opium wars of the 1840s to the defeat of Japan in the 1940s. But the idea of national humiliation is not Chinese, nor for that matter is it Japanese, but it was definitely on the minds of many Japanese after 1895. The first modern scholar of nationalism, uh, the Frenchman Ernest Renan, observed a few years before the Sino-Japanese War that when it comes to national memory, tragedies matter more than triumphs, for they impose tasks and command communal effort, 
Um, this may feel a little bit like uh, we're getting off track here, but it's important uh, to understand nationalism as well as the memory politics of large group collective identities. There's a psychologist named Vamik Volkan and who's, who's uh, known for his important work explaining the role of chosen traumas and chosen glories in producing and sustaining ethnic, national, and religious group identities. According to him, collective glories and traumas, which are mythologized and transmitted intergenerationally, form a critical basis for large group identity. Chosen glories are positive representations of events and people who are important to that group identity. These narratives are pleasurable, building self-esteem through association with a glorious collective past. In contrast, chosen traumas are collective mental representations of tragedies, which are given significance as shared markers of collective identity. This means that trauma has a dual function in enforcing group identity, one that is negative and the other positive. So first, the wrongs of the past against the collective must be righted, uh, and they must be righted by the collective itself. In other words, chosen traumas are a command from the past to rectify injustices perpetrated on the collective body. And yet, even in those unusual cases where redemption is found, the satisfaction of this chosen glory uh, is, can now bolster positive group identity. And this is related to a second point, which is that surviving or overcoming victimization can build a group self-esteem as the progeny of a long line of survivors. Anyway, returning to our historical narrative of the, of the Sino-Japanese War and its aftermath, the national humiliation imposed on Japan by the intervention of the Russians and their French and German backers was not even over yet. Uh, it had already become, though, a rallying cry and a trope that would be returned to over and over again in Japan. It was a kind of proof of a glass ceiling for non-whites, a racist ceiling, if you will. It was proof that race trumped civilization. It was proof that, as Tokutomi Soho put it, Japan's path forward would be determined by its military strength above all else. And like I said, the humiliation, in fact, was not done yet. Almost immediately after the Japanese were forced uh, by Russia to evacuate the Liaodong Peninsula, one of Tokyo's most valuable spoils of the war, Russia then uh, occupied the peninsula itself and within a few years had forcibly extracted a lease from the Chinese of about a quarter century. In 1896, Russia extracted permission from China to continue its Trans-Siberian rail tracks through northern Manchuria to the terminus at Vladivostok. The lease of Port Arthur two years later gave Russia its much-needed warm-water port. The Tsar was also meddling in Korea. Like China before it, Russia allied itself with anti-Japanese, anti-reform conservatives. Well, looking at the situation from Tokyo, there could be no doubt that Russia, not China, was the greatest threat then to Japanese interests in East Asia. Uh, in other words, the lessons and consequences of the war were mixed for Japan. On the one hand, it had been enormously popular up until the uh, Russian intervention. It had also been wildly profitable, even with Western interference. It was profitable both territorially and in economic terms. Japan had emerged as a respected world power, confirmed as one of the uh, model, as one of the great powers of Asia, the model modernizer of the non-Western world. Together with the Anglo-Japanese Treaty signed almost simultaneously to the start of hostilities, Japan had gained meaningful momentum toward the end of the unequal treaties. 
It hardly needs mentioning that the real losers in all this were China and Korea. But despite these upsides for Japan, Japan did not become uh, did not come out of this unscathed and rose-scented. After all was said and done, and, uh, the government ended up perhaps even less popular than it had been when it went to war, in part to deflect public opinion away from its heavy-handed suppression of popular opinion and its authoritarian constitution. The Japanese press had whipped its readers into a frenzy of nationalist fervor during the war, and the letdown was far from gentle. Combined with growing anti-Oriental racism in places like the U.S. West Coast, which threatened Japanese emigrants, Japan's public and her policymakers became convinced, and not without reason, that no amount of civilization, whether that was measured in enlightened law and philosophy, in modern schools and industry, or post offices and railways or whatever, could substitute for whiteness and Protestantism in the quest to become a world power. In her account of the war written more than a century after its conclusion, Sarah Payne, who I quoted earlier, the military historian, boiled this all down uh, more or less to a sentiment much like Toktomi's. The Japanese drew important lessons from the war, namely, the powers could not care less about moral issues of right and wrong, the traditional concerns of Confucian ethics. And though military prowess, and only through military prowess could Japan protect its national interests. For civilian and military Japan, the overwhelming lesson of the Sino-Japanese War was that Japan must focus on enhancing its military power to ensure its independence. And since the Russians had revealed themselves as Japan's most powerful and aggressive rival for East Asian hegemony, the next war was, predictably, with Russia. The Russo-Japanese War has been described as World War Zero because of it, the involvement of the world powers in what amounted to a proxy war. It came in 1904, less than a decade after Japan's victory in China. But that decade witnessed several developments that are worth mentioning before we move on to the conflict with Russia. Uh, and I've divided them here into domestic and uh, international developments. So domestically, the Liberal Party reached a detente with the oligarchs in order to gain a share of power. Hemmed in as they were by the Constitution, their tactics had got them really nothing significant up to that point, so the party threw itself behind the government. A party cabinet was first formed in June of 1898. For the popular rights activists, this seemed a major victory. But the parties remained too bogged down in, frankly, petty intra- and inter-party rivalries to really exert much leverage against the apparatus which the oligarchs had put in place. And the general themselves continued to wield extra-legal power anyway. The man who came to the fore in this period was Yamagata Aritomo, who, upon the party cabinet's inauguration, wrote to a friend, the Meiji government has finally fallen. He was vehemently anti-party, vehemently pro-military, and he had been so throughout his career, but both his convictions and his position were strengthened by the Sino-Japanese War. Yamagata convinced the Diet to support a massive tax increase to fund military buildup. He changed army and navy regulations to require a high-ranking active-duty officer to serve as minister, and he enacted the Draconian Police Law of 1900 to allow government crackdowns on labor unions and other dangerous and divisive forces. He also worked hard to cultivate a power base in the conservative House of Peers, which was able to stymie party government. On the other hand, internationally, Japan experienced several significant successes in the interim years between the, these first two major wars. First, in 1900, the Japanese sent the largest contingent to China to assist the international coalition force suppressing the Boxer Rebellion, as it was called. 
the boxers uh, were an unarmed xenophobic peasant movement, uh, unwisely courted by the falling Qing court as a possible weapon against the Western powers. Japan sent 10,000 troops, uh, as many as all of those of the other participants combined, uh, and those troops earned the respect of the international community for their discipline and restraint. And the whole incident confirmed Japan's new role as the policeman of Asia and one of the great powers. The best evidence for this is that Japan joined the ensuing peace talks as an equal to the Western powers, and was also allowed to station a permanent peacekeeping force near Beijing. Russia and Japan had been on the same side in this conflict, but that temporary alignment of interests did not outlast the cessation of hostilities. Before the two sides went to war, though, Japan achieved the greatest diplomatic coup in its history, the Anglo-Japanese Alliance of 1902. Uh, Russia refused to withdraw its troops from Manchuria in the wake of the Boxer Rebellion. Tokyo felt threatened by this. Uh, its economic interests in particular uh, were threatened by uh, the, this sort of Russian aggression there. Japanese diplomatic efforts to persuade Russia to vacate Manchuria ended in failure. Tensions mounted. The Japanese alliance with the British was hammered out roughly at the same time uh, that Japanese-Russian relations were deteriorating and the shadow of war was looming larger. This alliance for Japan with the world's great superpower was the clearest sign yet that Japan had clawed its way into the exclusive club of great nations and had been recognized as a real player in world politics. It would have been enormously significant for, uh, for that reason for, at any time, but it was particularly important in 1902 because it afforded Japan protections against having to fight an alliance of Russia plus a second or even a third power. In the words of Richard Cavendish, it was agreed that if either of the high contracting parties, in other words, the British and the Japanese, became involved with, in war with another country, the other party, uh, if it was Japan, then the British, if it was British, then the Japan, uh, would remain neutral. If either party were confronted by two or more opponents, however, the other party would come to its aid. Japan could now count on the British in a war with Russia, if any other power, France and Germany were the ones in mind, were to ally with Russia. Japanese domination of Korea was tacitly accepted, because the Brits had, Japanese, had Japan's back. It's also interesting because Great Britain had abandoned its policy of so-called splendid isolation uh, in place since the end of the Crimean War, uh, Crimean War of 1853 to 56. Uh, and they'd, you know, they'd done that specifically to sign this treaty with Japan. For both parties, the alliance was intended to stem Russian incursions into Manchuria, which would threaten not just Japan's political and economic sphere of influence in Northeast Asia, but also British political interests in China and commercial interests as well. Though it was, in this sense, an eminently sensible partnership, it was also the first between one of the Atlantic powers and an Asian nation. Japan, in this sense, had truly arrived. Diplomatic exchanges between Russia and Japan continued into 1903, but Russia had little interest in dealing with a country which it felt to be beneath it, and Japan chafed at every insult, whether it was real or imagined. The Gendo, including Yamagata, were generally cautious about a war with Japan's giant neighbor, but the press was once again stirring up the public, and the army leaders and younger politicians and diplomats were more than willing to test Jap Japanese strength against the Russians. They got their chance in 1904 when the cabinet decided that diplomatic options had been exhausted, and then went ahead and voted for, to go to war. 
In essence, Japan had decided that its material interests in both Korea and Manchuria were worth the cost of a war with Russia. So this was Japan's second war over dominance of the Korean Peninsula in just a decade, and it was the first over Manchuria. Despite a string of dramatic Japanese victories, the outcome was mixed. Beginning with a surprise attack, the Japanese sank nearly the entire Russian Navy, uh, the Pacific Navy, in a series of pitched battles. The sneak attack, which was carried out before the official declaration of war, badly damaged several ships and trapped the Russian Pacific Fleet in Port Arthur and Vladivostok. This allowed the Japanese to land troops unmolested on the mainland. Later, the Baltic Fleet, which had sailed halfway around the world to try and even the odds, was destroyed in the Tsushima Strait. As it had been a decade earlier, international opinion was breathless with praise for Japan. The Times of London, for example, called the Japanese sneak attack in, uh, an act of daring, which is destined to, make a place of, to take a place of honor in naval annals. The New York Times called it a crushing blow to Russia. Uh, it's worth sort of noting that the Western press was less impressed with Pearl Harbor when it came about in 1941, but that was basically the same thing, a sneak attack to take out the Pacific fleet of a regional rival. In any case, it's true that this opening salvo was a major setback for the Tsar, but Russia still held many long-term strategic advantages. Its population was nearly three times as large, with roughly five times the trained military manpower and natural resources in abundance, which Japan did not have. These long-term advantages began to pay dividends as the conflict dragged on, devolving into trench warfare that presaged World War I. In the battle for Port Arthur, the Japanese lost 58,000 troops and the Russians 31,000. In the final battle at Mukden, the Japanese lost 70,000 and the Russians 85,000. This was a war that Japan could not win, even if it was not losing either. So the Japanese secretly approached the American president, Theodore Roosevelt, to, bro to uh, broker a peace settlement. In September of 1905, the, the parties uh, gathered at Portsmouth, New Hampshire uh, to hash things out. The Treaty of Portsmouth, which earned Teddy Roosevelt the first American Nobel Peace Prize, reflected the stalemate. In other words, Tokyo had the upper hand, but no real chance of victory. The Tsar was hard-pressed, but had the edge in the long run. It also reflected, though, Roosevelt's own agenda, which was to avoid giving either Japan or Russia a free hand in post-settlement East Asia, because the U.S. had its own strategic interests in the Asia-Pacific region, which Roosevelt saw as the next frontier for development and expansion. The U.S. had just received the Philippines from Spain in 1899, and Roosevelt saw the islands as the next Wild West, a proving ground for American masculinity and civilization. With the Portsmouth settlement, Japan took control of the southern half of Sakhalin, which is still an issue with Russia today, uh, also took uh, the Russian railway lines in southern Manchuria, and the leases on two Manchurian ports. Tokyo also received recognition of its paramount military, uh, political, and economical interests in Korea, and a promise from the Tsar neither to obstruct nor interfere with measures for guidance, protection, and control which the imperial government of Japan may find necessary to take in Korea. On the other hand, Japan enjoyed minimal territorial gains and received no compensation. Unlike the war with China a decade earlier, Japan was on the hook for all of its own expenses. Japan was now in sole control of Korea and would make this protectorate a colony just five years later. But the Japanese public, 
unaware of their country's inability to continue the war, and drunk on dramatic accounts of victory after victory against the Russians, was deeply disappointed. Three days of rioting ensued in Tokyo, and this touched off what some historians call the era of popular protest. Moreover, the expenses of the war led to serious budget shortfalls for the Meiji government, problems that, of course, were paid for with tax hikes on regular people. The war had cost over hundreds of millions of yen, and Japan had raised the money mostly in London and New York on the stock exchanges, and not always on favorable repayment terms. Very few Western financiers expected Japan to win against the world's largest standing army, and a navy with more battleships and, frankly, also a white Western power. So Tokyo was able to secure some loans in relatively sympathetic London, but Paris, which was the uh, world's number two capital market at the time, was a no-go since France was a Russian ally. Uh, in, instead of Paris then, uh, New York turned out to be an unexpected source of money for Japan when Jewish financiers, angered by the Tsar's treatment of Jews in Russia, expressed an interest in funding Japan's war effort. Americans underwrote $133 million of Japanese loans for the war. And there were rumors that Roosevelt was using this American money as leverage to get Japan to accept the Portsmouth Treaty. Opinion at home notwithstanding, the Russo-Japanese War was an absolutely momentous event in world history. Jamal Aydin has described it as a global moment, perhaps the first ever in the sense that it came at a time when real-time information was just becoming globalized uh, and because its impact was felt in countries and colonies around the world. As Aydin argued, the outcome of the war was interpreted throughout the world as the first victory of an Asian nation belonging to the yellow race against a major white and Christian Western empire. In fact, the world historical significance of the Japanese victory over Russia was noted by a wide array of contemporary observers writing in the immediate aftermath of the war. The, uh, this interpretation of the Japanese military victory transformed the character of reformist thought perceptions of the Western civilization, and the critiques of international order in the major centers of the non-Western world, from Egypt, Iran, and Turkey, to India, Vietnam, and China. In other words, the global moment was a turning point for Pan-Asianism and Pan-Islamism, a turning point that convinced the intellectual leaders of the non-Western, i.e. non-white, non-Christian world, that the dominance of the Atlantic powers of the West was not bulletproof. For the first time since Napoleon had barged into Egypt a century earlier, there was a chink in the West's economic and military dominance in the world. Around the non-Western world, the global moment of the Russo-Japanese War and the Japanese victory in 1905 marked a turning point in the development of Pan-Asian and Pan-Islamic thought. Japan was a hero to the non-West, and a model. Around the world, countries as diverse as Turkey, Iran, and China looked to Japan as the model for how to succeed in a Western-dominated world. The young Turks who overthrew the Ottoman Empire and founded modern Turkey, for instance, openly proclaimed their admiration for Japanese martial spirit and progress, and also their own goal to make Turkey, quote, the Japan of the Near East. Jawaharlal Nehru, the first prime minister of India after independence, recalled in his autobiography that Japan's victory against Russia was a great pick-me-up for Asia that awoke in him a determination to fight for India. In a letter to his daughter, Nehru uh, called Russia's defeat an occurrence which stirred Asia greatly. It was a source of confidence for the colonized, he continued. 
India, in common with other Asiatic countries, was vastly impressed, that is, uh, was vastly impressed. That is, the educated middle classes were impressed, and their self-confidence grew. If Japan could make good against one of the most powerful European countries, why not India? For long, the Indian people had suffered from a feeling of inferiority before the British. In India, Japan's victory lessened the feeling of inferiority, from which most of us suffered. Nationalist ideas spread more widely. This fascination with Japan lasted about a decade before Japan squandered its international goodwill. But its effects in Japan lasted longer, becoming the sort of glory days or golden age uh, for Asianists in Japan, who would later return to this golden decade to justify the position they had assumed as the eldest brother of Asia. Uh, in other words, long after Japan had shown itself to be little better, if at all, than the Western oppressors, they were still sort of calling on this era uh, and the uh, positive sentiment from around the world to justify their positions. Crucially, when even formerly sympathetic or openly positive Asian leaders, uh, Nehru, for example, also Gandhi, uh, became critical of Japan and its expansionism, they were dismissed by the Japanese uh, by returning to this golden age of the sort of world subaltern expectations for Japan. The 1905 to 1914 period, when there was an interest in Japanese leadership in different parts of Asia. As Jamal Aydin wrote, when Free India leader Subhas Chandra Bose remarked to the prominent uh, intellectual, uh, Japanese intellectual, Oka Shume, that he was entertaining an alliance with the Soviets despite his anti-communist political stance because he was prepared to shake hands even with Satan himself to drive out the British from India. It surely did not occur to Okawa that Japan might well be one Satan with whom Chandra Bose had to cooperate. Aydin summarized the situation well when he noted that the small group of Japan's Asian collaborators, together with the Asian and African-American intellectuals who expressed support for Japan's Asianist projects, were very important in allowing Japanese intellectuals to convince themselves that their ideas of the new order in East Asia and the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere were different from Western imperialism. We're going to leave it off there, but in the next lecture we're going to explore uh, this decade after 1905 uh, and sort of move on from there. Uh, this was the decade that of course starts with victory uh, and also with riots uh, and also with international admiration. And it includes the annexation and then the uh, actual colonization of um, Korea. And it ends with Japanese diplomatic aggression against China while Europe is busy in the trenches of World War I. Uh, before we uh, sign off, though, uh, as usual, I want to end with a, a brief sort of summary of several of the most important points. Japan's wars with China and then with Russia are useful lenses through which we can see and understand Japan's position in the international order and its domestic politics at the opening of the 20th century. Japan had established itself as a major imperial power and the most important player in East Asia. Japan had a colony, Taiwan. It had a protectorate, Korea, and it had a growing sphere of influence in Manchuria. Japan had acquired Great Britain as a military ally. It had also acquired admirers from around the globe. Many, even in the West, saw Japan, like themselves, as a bringer of light and civilization to backward Asia. On the other hand, many outside of the global north looked to Japan as a model to overcome the West. Domestically, on the other hand, the picture was less rosy. Politics were contentious at best. 
the public was lapping up nationalistic drivel peddled by the press. Japan was saddled with massive debt after the Russo-Japanese War. Discontent with these and other issues drove riots in the cities and resentment in the countryside. And even though some rural areas were making a successful transition to the modern economy, the damage from the 1896 uh, Sanriku tsunami in Tohoku, and also the Riku earthquake that followed that summer, was so serious that the Pacific coast of Tohoku had not even fully recovered in 1933, when a second devastating tsunami struck.